welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Ivanetin. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke to Dr. Debashish Bhattacharya, who is my boss, about Cyanophora paradoxa, a species of glaucophyte algae. It's so funny because I hate my voice and the podcast voice and cadence I've been trying to achieve this whole time just sort of happened during this interview. And it's because um, I think talking to Debashish, although he's a normal guy and he's funny and we've known each other for a long time, since he's my boss, maybe I subconsciously get a little more serious. But anyway, I'm going to make the bold claim here that this is probably the first and only podcast episode ever on glaucophyte algae, which some of you might have never heard of. So I hope you enjoy it and that you learn something. Like last week's episode, this one touches on some complex topics, but I hope we are able to make them digestible to you. I like obscure and rare organisms, and I'm glad we did this episode because so few people in the world have studied glaucophytes, and we're lucky to have someone available who has. Also, listen till the end to hear me talk all about chlamydia with my boss and to bring up some of his past publishing decisions and put him on the spot a little bit. For more information about microbes or the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today, I have Dr. Debashish Bhattacharya, who is a distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology at Rutgers University and head of a lab that produces some of the best PhDs in the world, but the worst, most annoying postdocs. Hi, DB. How's it going? A perfect description of our lab, Julia. It's a (laughs) pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me to your uh, podcast. Thanks. Before we start, can you just give a little background on your educational path and the kind of work that you do now? Sure, happy to do that. So, um, born in India, but I grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, where I really fell in love with the ocean. I lived by the uh, ocean side and did a lot of diving and fishing and canoeing, and that got me really interested, first of all, in all sorts of marine life. But really, I was uh, excited by kelps, these large seaweeds that you find at low tide. So I started my master's degree in environmental science after a bachelor's degree in biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, focusing on sort of the population biology of a local seaweed called Chondrus crispus, a red seaweed. Then I did my PhD at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia, and that was sort of the beginnings of the big DNA revolution. So I was one of the first people to use different DNA sequences PCR and genome sequencing to come up with some of the sort of the early tree of life and these sorts of questions and looking at the population biology. So that was my PhD and then I went to Denver to do the the beginning of a postdoc which I ended as a Sloan Fellow at the Marine Biology Lab in Woods Hole working with Mitch Sogan on the RNA world and lots of other sort of tree of life stories and I moved to Germany for seven years 
worked in a couple of institutes, ending at the Max Planck Institute, and then I got a job at the University of Iowa, where I was for 10 years and got up to full professor, and then moved to Rutgers, where I have been for about 11 years now, and yeah, that's, just, that's my story. That was great. So which organism are we going to be talking about today? Well, in the world of biodiversity, we're always attracted by the things that we see everywhere. I'm going to talk about something that's truly not biodiverse, <laughs> but it's one of the great success stories on our planet. So for synthetic life, as you know, encompasses all sorts of things from massive sequoia trees to tiny little green algae and so on. I'm going to talk about one arm of the algal tree of life that has been around for about one and a half billion years, ancient, but only managed to generate maybe four what we call genera that are four major types of species, maybe more to come, but incredibly not biodiverse. Therefore, they are very interesting to understand how something such low diversity can stick around for such a long period of time. Cool. I'm assuming that you are hinting at glaucophytes. So which glaucophyte in particular are we going to start with today? And then we could talk about all of them. But That's a great scientific uh, jab right there, Julia. <laughs> we are, in fact, talking about the famous glaucophyta, one of the three arms of the photosynthetic tree of life, the others being the red algae and red seaweeds, and the third being the green algae and plants. So the Glaucophyta, as I said, only have four so-called genera with weird Latin names like Cyanophora, Glioquita, Glaucocystis, and Cyanoptusia. I never knew how to say that one. Thank you. <laughs> I said the last one the way that Germans would say it because I think that's the, okay. that's the coolest way of saying it. So I'm gonna, I think we should maybe start with the most famous of the Glaucophytes, which is not saying much, but it's still saying something, and that is Cyanophora paradoxa. Cool. My last interview was with Arwa, so I think this is actually really good timing because I think the things you're going to explain are going to be related to primary endosymbiosis, and she did kind of explain that last week, so we could build upon it. And so what can we learn from Cyanophora paradoxa, and why do we study this organism? I presume then Arwa spoke about Polynella, which is yes. this famous protist, which was first sort of thought of as being important because it looked like an animal with a plant-like part in it. And that's what Robert Lauterborn described in 1895. And before Polynella became more well-studied as it is now, Cyanophora had exactly that position. It was really thought of as a animal-like cell that had a plant-like part because it's a photosynthetic organelle, the part of the cell that does photosynthesis, has actually some traits that it shares with cyanobacteria, which is the source of that organelle. And therefore, for a long time, people call these things cyanelles because they referred to that sort of suggesting that they had a cyanobacterial origin, and people thought they were like living fossils, that they had essentially captured a cyanobacterium and not become as highly evolved as plants and other things. So for that reason... Before Polynella became such a famous species, Cyanophora was actually that species that people <laughs> looked to as being sort of a the lungfish of the algal world, something we could look at and study to figure out how the early stages of endosymbiosis uh, happened and what were some of the major mechanisms that led to photosynthesis being established in eukaryotes. You mentioned that these photosynthetic organelles look like cyanobacteria. Can you explain more about these more ancient features in this alga? 
Yeah, the most famous feature of the plastidin glycophytes that has made people go crazy with joy or frustration <laughs> is that, uh, as you probably know, as a brilliant graduate student in our lab. Not that, a postdoc. Not so a postdoc. Brilliant. <laughs> not a, a world-class graduate student and not a terrible postdoc. You will know that proteobacteria have something called peptidoglycan, which is this sort of cell wall that they have between the two membranes that make up their uh, outside of their cell. They're called plasma membranes. Between the two of them is this thick wall made of peptidoglycan. And so this is not found in any other photosynthetic cell except maybe a moss where there's some evidence they may have one. But really, the, the most famous ones are the glycophytes. And so, so like the other glycophytes, cyanophora retains the peptidoglycan wall of the cyanobacterium, which is a proteobacterial cell, and therefore it, it has something that's very ancient that is reminiscent of, a, of its bacterial ancestry. So you're saying that the other algae in the Archaeoplastida tree do not have this feature in their photosynthetic organelle. Yeah, it looks very much like certainly coming in, that feature was there. And so pollinella still maintains it. Pollinella mm-hmm. still has a peptoglycan wall. So if you look at the rest of the archaeoplastida, only the glycophytes retain it. And the idea is that it was lost by every other photosynthetic eukaryote. I remember talking to Arwa about how pollinella is a good model for endosymbiosis because we can see it in action. It was like a recent acquisition and so I know that the peptidoglycan in the chromatophore of pollinella is encoded in the chromatophore, but most of the peptidoglycan biosynthesis genes are encoded by the nucleus in cyanophora. Can you explain like what everything I said means and why that's interesting? <laughs> yeah, so you're getting at like, <laughs> one of the most coolest and most complicated parts of uh, endosymbiosis. So let me just start at the beginning. So you have a really happy free-living cell, right? It's in the it's in the ocean, like the cyanobacterium that gave rise to the uh, plastid in, uh, in glycophytes and other algae and plants. So it's really fit. It's able to do photosynthesis, take care of itself, deal with stresses. So it gets captured by another cell, and what happens is a process referred to as Muller's ratchet, which is essentially like a wheel that turns slowly, and what that wheel does is that it starts to strip the organelle genome, that is the DNA inside that free-living cell, gets lost over time. What Muller's ratchet does is that it essentially renders that new endosymbiont dependent on the host. That is, it can no longer function because it's lost a bunch of genes. And so what happens then when you lose those genes is that the host will have to provide some of the proteins that they encode, otherwise the endosymbiont can't survive. For example, to do photosynthesis, to make proteins, to do translation, to make proteins, all of these things. And this process of gene loss um, and some of those genes being transferred to the nuclear DNA of the host, that's called endosymbiotic gene transfer or EGT. So this is what has happened in pollinella. Every single gene except one that encodes peptidoglycan is still in the genome of the endosymbiont, and the one gene that's in the nucleus, its protein gets pushed in, transferred to the organelle. In the case of cyanophora, EGT has pushed all of the other genes into the nucleus, so they all have to be then translated in the cytosol and then imported into the organelle to build the peptidoglycan. So basically two organisms becoming one and becoming inseparable. Yeah, the host becoming the master and the ones free living 
uh, organelle becoming the machine that it's using. So, so really, it is this process is known as genome reduction, in which the DNA of the endosymbiont gets less and less, and the host gets more and more control of its function. So this is something we find in virtually all cases of long-term endosymbiosis. Cool. So I know that in 2012, you led the sequencing of the first glaucophyte genome, which was Cyanophora paradoxa. I think that's still the only glaucophyte genome. Can you first explain exactly what it means to sequence a genome? And then could you share any interesting results you found? Yeah, so back in the ancient times of 2012, (laughs) (laughs) sequencing a genome was a lot more challenging. And of course, as you know, as sequencing technology has gotten better and better, not only smaller in size, but also more data at lower cost, it's made this whole enterprise much, much easier. So back then, to sequence a genome is to take a bunch of cells, uh, break it up, usually using liquid nitrogen or some other source, and then you isolate the DNA from that, and then you create you know, in the old days, you would clone it in sequence, but nowadays, it's called random shotgun sequencing. You just break that DNA up into pieces, and you run it through a high-throughput sequencer, like an Illumina or a PacBio instrument. And there you get billions of base pairs of DNA. So that's kind of the easier side. The hard side comes afterwards when you have all of the data. You have to use really complicated computer programs that look for matches between pieces of DNA and tries to stitch it together into, the, into as large a possible chunk of the chromosomes as you can. So this procedure has gotten better and better over time as the data has gotten to be much longer, so it's much easier to stitch it together. And now you can actually make uh, what are called assemblies, that is the sort of the collection of all the DNA sequence and assembled, you can get them almost to the chromosome level. So you can actually start to figure out how many chromosomes there are and what genes are on them and compare chromosomes from different species. So all of that is where, it's, where it was headed. Back in 2012, we had what's called PacBio data, which is long read data, somewhere between five to 10,000 bases in size. And that's what allowed us to generate this genome, which is about 140 million base pairs in size, so quite large. It was a surprise that it was that large, right? So why is it so big? What's in there? Yeah, so this is something that I think you're probably familiar with. What we find with species that don't have very large populations, you know, like like humans, is that when you don't have very large populations, there's a theory in population genetics which says that as populations get smaller in size, then the strength of selection gets weaker. It's also known as genetic drift. And drift is usually bad. So this is where somewhat bad mutations that accumulate, they don't get selected out because your population size is so small that there's less competition between individuals. So this is really important. So when you have very large populations, then selection is super strong. So every little failure of your DNA gets weeded out. That is, you don't compete and you're lost from that uh, particular species. So as you started this whole story, The glaucophytes are actually quite rare in nature and few, so we can probably speculate with some, you know, with some some support that the the reason why they have larger genomes is simply because they have smaller population sizes, so selection is weaker in getting rid of accumulating DNA over time. Got it. So that makes sense. And so there's selective forces at play that arise because these organisms are rare and then probably, I guess, like keep them rare. 
and I think the estimates lie between 14 and 26 described species. You know, that's probably an understatement, right? But like, do you think these are actually super rare? And where are they found in nature? And what do they do in nature? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I... So first, they live in fresh water. So they're all freshwater species. They can, they usually live in little sort of acidic bogs or they can often associate on the underside of leaves. There's a number of different places, but they're not open ocean. They're not open lake. You know, they're not in the middle of lakes. So they are, they like more sheltered, somewhat acidic freshwater areas. They've been found in the Rhine River. They've been found in little bogs here and there. You know, you can find them in any area where you have that sort of brackish to sort of freshwater environment. Now, now, the question of are we just really bad at the glaucophyta census is that are they all <laughs> shutting the doors when we go to their homes and not being counted? I would say that's always a possibility. There's always new produce being found. But if you just think about the thousands of people who have looked at millions of sites over the years, you will see that there were some incredibly talented microbiologists and zoologists in the past and if these species were actually found in different places, they would have been described by now because people back in the you know 1900s and earlier, they were really, really good at observation. That was their thing. And because the glaucophytes stand out so much, they have a bright sort of greenish-blue color, they would actually really, really stand out in any sample. So my my personal guess is that, yes, I'm sure there are more species out there, but I do not think that we're going to find a massive number of undescribed species by looking somewhere. I just don't think, I think we would have done that by now. And I could say anecdotally, as someone who does a lot of microscopy, I think I've, I do so much microscopy. I look everywhere. I think I've found three glaucophyte okay. cells ever. That's why I was forgetting to, uh, to, <laughs> to cite the most famous microscopist. <laughs> and, and, She's not from the 1900s. Definitely not. Well, I am from the 1900s, well, technically. Yeah. But well, yeah, you're not from the 1867. No. no, you're from the, yes, you are an absolutely terrific microscopist. And, <laughs> and I think that's sort of a, I guess you probably knew the answer to that question before you asked. Because if you had found a bunch of glaucophytes, we'd all be having parties and saying, holy smokes. If I found smokes. a bunch, I would have lied. Had you come on and give that speech, and then I would have been like, busted. You're a bad scientist. Yes, unfortunately, I've been on at least one microscopy expedition with you, Julia. And as I recall, we didn't come across one single glaucophyte after. No, but I found one a few weeks ago. Okay, good but. for you. So we should tell your audience they definitely exist. They exist. We've you, seen them. You can you can actually buy them from culture collections, right? So so they're definitely I, out there. I but. looked it up today for that paper. I think there's like 28 different strains available in culture collections right. around the world. Right, so I think the the one species that tends to show up the most is called Glaucocystis, and there you find many, many. So this is the one that doesn't have any flagella, and it kind of like it makes these like sort of sort of spore bodies where they're often like four or five cells in a in sort of a mucilaginous little bag, or they're individual. That's what you tend to find most often in nature. That's I've never seen Cyanophora in nature. No, and I've you know, and Cyanoptisha would be hard to tell without actually doing a DNA analysis because they kind of look similar, but. Glaucocystis is, if there is a winner, it's Glaucocystis. It's the one you tend to find most. Yeah, I've read that that one could like bloom and become somewhat numerous. But so just to put it into context, so we know of like a dozen or a couple dozen quote unquote species of Glaucophytes compared to thousands of red algae 
tens of thousands of green algal species and hundreds of thousands of plant species that have been described. Yeah. So I, I would say I can already guess your question yeah. right there. <laughs> why? <laughs> well, well, why? And just like Polinella, yeah. like why are they still around? They're not dying out. They're cosmopolitan. They're all over the world, but they're low, yeah. low abundance. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we have this, I was thinking a little bit about this because it's obviously I don't have the exact answer. How would you know that? Because this is over a billion years of evolution. But what I can tell you is this, is that whenever you say the word biodiversity, you're already talking about a curve. Mm-hmm. You're talking, you know, like, a, you, know, you know, what's called you know, like a decay curve, you know, where you have an exponential loss. You have really a lot of something and then less and less of other things and very, very few of the others. So the word biodiversity actually is implicitly saying that there's a lot of some things and less of others, and our goal here is to keep that entire number. But it recognizes that the biodiversity of some species are never going to be endangered because they're everywhere, right? So, so I think in a way, the glaucophytes are in that biodiversity spectrum. They just always have never been able to outcompete the other four synthetic cells, and therefore they've been around for over a billion years, but they haven't actually achieved large numbers. And the reason for that would be very, very speculative, and I don't know. But what we do know is that at the very outset of this, there were a lot of very important sort of mechanistic evolutionary steps that happened. And this is what Arwa really studied in Polinella, is what are those steps? And what we see is that they're really complicated. There's many, many of them. So I can imagine in the early evolution of the Archaeoplastida that these steps played out differently in the red algal ancestor, the green algal ancestor, and then the glaucophyte ancestor. And for whatever reason, the red and the green were more efficient and they grew more quickly. And therefore, after a while, they completely dominated the ecosystems and glaucophytes were kind of relegated to this more uh, relictual or, you know, this sort of smaller role in the ecosystems. And after that, of course, then came the diatoms and anaphylaxis, all these other things that arose through secondary and tertiary endosymbiosis. And at that point, I think, if you're not super efficient at growth, then I think you're kind of relegated to that sort of low f- frequency of occurrence. Yeah, and I guess like you mentioned with the whole biodiversity spectrum curve, most organisms, not most in terms of population, but most in terms of discrete different species, most are rare and we probably don't know about them. But the ones we do know, we know about because there's so many. And then... You were saying, you know, there's the three branches of Archaeoplastida, the glaucophytes, the red algae, the green algae, which include land plants. Do you think there were, you know, other extinct branches? And these are just the three that stuck around because they were the most successful? Because glaucophytes can't be a complete failure. They can't outcompete the other photosynthetic things, but they're still around over a billion and a half years later. So they're they're cool. They're good. Yeah, actually, one of the things, no, that's absolutely true. And one of the things that we, I think the, I think the last paragraph of that 2012 genome paper was that um, they're not really lungfish because they actually <laughs> have a lot, they have a lot of sophisticated sort of genetic toolkits shared with the red and green algae, you know, so they have a sophisticated way of importing proteins into organelles. They have all of the major features of other algae and plants, so they're not in any way sort of uh, less equipped. But again, as you know, in nature, it's very competitive, right? So, mm-hmm. so there may be the environments, you know, that they might flourish in are actually very difficult to be established. So 
We don't know. The, I mean, that's a really important question, which I don't know the answer to. One could try to create sort of synthetic environments in a lab and do competition experiments and try to figure out what happens when you put in green and red algae with glycophytes. I mean, there may be some way you can f- do this, but of course evolution plays out over millions of years and millions of habitats, so it's a quite a complicated experiment if you really think about it. Interesting. Oh, so in every episode I've done of this podcast so far, something, I don't want to say like out of left field, but every episode's kind of devolved into a rant about something, whether Um, that food insecurity or like how humans are stupid and microbes are great. Or the last two episodes, I spoke with Alvin upstairs about viruses and Arwa, as we said, and both of them kind of talked about how you know, science isn't always straightforward and it's this iterative process that's forever moving us closer to the truth. But of course, it's not perfect. So I guess in that context, would you say that Cyanophora paradoxa is a modern day intermediate or a missing link that's helping us prove the theory of primary endosymbiosis? What gaps in our scientific knowledge is studying this organism important for? Yeah, so I should... so. I'm not going to rant about that because okay. I, I think that think that uh, that question has a pretty lucid and <laughs> believable answer without okay. without me uh, swearing and you know and uh, wrapping my fist on the table in frustration. So one of the great things that there's a very important word in evolution is called uh, derivation. So when you're derived, it means that you've started from a particular ancestral strait. And it's either because you won the battle with the other species or you moved into a new environment. What that does is that accelerates evolution. So as you move into a new environment, for example, your genome, it tends to change a lot because new functions are needed. So selection that drives you forward. So one of the things we recognize from the red and the green algae in plants is that they are highly derived. Mm-hmm. So that is, if you compare plants to green algae, it's obvious that the plants have made massive steps forward in their tissue structure, all sorts of complicated mechanistic ways. Therefore, it's very difficult to compare the plant to the archaeoplastid ancestor. Yeah, sure. Because the plants are so derived. They're, they're, they've mm-hmm. explored so many spaces, co-evolved with insects, you name it. So then you look back and say, okay, well, and, and the red seaweeds have done something similar. They've yeah. also gone into many different habitats. They're all over the world, shallow water, deep water. So you think, okay, <laughs> who really didn't have the opportunity to get really derived? That's where the glaucophyta come in. So when we looked at the genome, so the, the maintenance of the peptidoglycan is one ancestral trait that they did not get rid of. Mm-hmm. So that's an obvious thing. But they actually have a few other ancestral traits that are really, really interesting. So, for example, you know, they, they maintain the pigments, essentially, yes. of the cyanobacteria. So they didn't evolve chlorophyll B, which happened in the green algae and the plastic shape and structure didn't change as much. So they actually have that. And another kind of a sort of a, a paper just came out from a, from a group in Japan that they showed that if you look at the photosystem one, which is one of the two main systems of turning light energy into sugars, it actually has a very different structure when compared to algae and plants. So this looks like even at the structural level of how you place protein sort of units side by side, it actually has a more ancestral sort of structure than do algae and plants. So there's another way in which this organism, because it's not as highly derived, it's maintaining ancestral traits. And this goes all the way to other traits like how they 
move sugars from the plastid to, uh, mm-hmm. to the cytosol. They actually don't have these very well-known proteins called phosphate translocators. They move like three carbon and six carbon sugars from the photosynthetic compartment to the host. They actually are using a and sort of an ancient transporters that are derived from other bacteria called chlamydia. So they have these really strange traits that simply because they didn't explore the planet and become so so successful, so they actually are, in a way, they're carrying a bunch of traits that are reminiscent of some of the earlier states. That's my favorite part of these organisms is that on the most basic levels, if you're just looking at these and comparing them to looking at other algae, they... They just look like an intermediate between, or their plastids do, between bacteria and eukaryotes. But you bringing up chlamydia, I think that's a good segue into a controversial topic, which is you are one of the people that coined the term menage a trois hypothesis. Is that correct? Can you explain that hypothesis? And could you also defend why you named it? Well, there's no... (laughs) There's no defense for that. Okay. <laughs> and first of all, well, I let, let me say that I was the uh, I was intermediary who tried to take take the uh, little bit of the bite out of that name. So so my very good buddy Stephen Ball, who's at the University of Lille in France, mm-hmm. uh, he and I and a, and a German professor named Andreas Weber were the three kingpins of the Ménage à Trois, if you want to call it that. And all of us thought, hmm, what should we name this theory? And Stephen who was very passionate and is very passionate about the theory, he chose the French version of it. And I was like thinking, geez, Stephen, do you really want to show you want to use this? No, it's all good. So he said, fine. So when we published it in multiple papers, I actually s- suggested to Stephen, can we maybe make this less weird in a sexual? way? Sexual? <laughs> less For sexual. example, <laughs> less tied to movies about that stuff. So I suggested... Let's change it to the mag hypothesis. So I convinced oh, Stephen. Okay. I convinced Stephen to take the menage à trois hypothesis and turn it into the mag, and that's what we now very often use, and that was used in a bunch of papers. So that was my way of sort of trying to, uh, yeah, make it less, uh, yeah, less sexy. And I just want to add that I segued it from chlamydia to that, not because like I'm a perv and I was thinking of STIs. It's because. Part of this hypothesis is that a bacterial chlamydial cell donated genes to organisms that were in the process of acquiring organelles so that it was a three-way gene exchange situation. Yeah, so 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 <laughs> let's get this straight, folks. So first of all, when people think of chlamydia, they're always thinking of the vertebrate pathogens, yes. right? And, but in fact... Your audience should know that the chlamydiales is one of the most ancient bacterial mm-hmm. groups on the planet. And in fact, most of the chlamydia are not infecting humans. They're actually infecting protists and other cells in nature. So, so these chlamydia, they're often known as temperate pathogens. What they do is that they get inside of a cell and they build this cool little house for themselves. And then they kind of live there for a while and they kind of soak up the energy from the host. The host doesn't die, but the chlamydia gets to live. And this has been going on for you know, as long as eukaryotes have been around, over 2 billion years. They've been doing this. So most of the chlamydiales are actually not the ones people think of. They actually have bigger genomes because they're not specialist pathogens. They're actually living with different species. So the chlamydia that we're talking about in our menage a trois mag hypothesis is the ancient sort of environmental chlamydia that associated with the archaeoplastida ancestor 
and then incorporated a cyanobacterium, and it was the chlamydia in that host cell that provided genes and functions that we hypothesize allowed the endosymbiosis to proceed. So it has nothing to do with... Uh, with uh, <laughs> the sexy ideas, it really has to do with the notion that the establishment of this really important sort of step in evolution was facilitated by a third party. And like you said, this is a very common pathogen because something similar happened in Polynella, right? So it looks like this guy just gets into all sorts of cells and spits out some of its genes and pops them into other genomes to simplify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So as you know, because you're like one of the big experts on it, horizontal gene transfer is this movement of genes between sort of unrelated donors and acceptors, and that can be from viruses to eukaryote to eukaryote, you name it. And if they happen at a high enough frequency, that is, you know, you get a whole bunch of genes from a particular source, then you start to think about a biological story of how did that happen, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see a single gene, you can say, okay, that was in there at some point that, you know, either through a virus or some other way it got in. So that's why the, the MAG hypothesis was actually quite exciting because there's about 50 genes in algae and plants that come from the chlamydiae. So, and, and, and the functions they have are so critical to the biochemistry of this host cell and, and its ability to use fixed carbon or sugars that, uh, from, from the endosymbiont that it really gave it a lot of sort of support. And so to set the record straight, you're saying that horizontal gene transfer in eukaryotes is not controversial. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I would say... We probably need an uh, objective third party in this room because, Julia, you and I are obviously co-authors of n not if but how much, the, that yes, paper in Trends sure. in Genetics that kind of lays out the story. And in fact, yeah, you've played a pivotal role in this field. And all over the world now, this notion, you know, it was kind of weird. People didn't think that, that eukaryotes could undergo this process, which is completely common in bacteria. And it turns out eukaryotes do it as well, but just at a lower frequency. So we just needed better data, more data, and it now has become clear. Now, of course, this explosion of papers, all sorts of horizontal transfers from, you know, from snakes to, you know, to frogs to you name it. It's all over the place. Yeah. So I think it's not controversial anymore. It's now more exciting to see what does it actually mean. It is weird that it was accepted in that genes can come from a cyanobacterial endosymbiont or alpha proteobacterial endosymbiont in the case of mitochondria to the nucleus, but that people didn't accept that other bacteria that enter the cell could also donate genes. Like, I still don't understand where that disconnect came from, but... Yeah, yeah. There's this differential loss hypothesis uh, that was around for a while. It suggested that essentially, and again, quote this, this group, that eukaryotic genomes are pristine, whatever that means, suggesting that every gene in it is of ancient eukaryotic origin, affected only by mutation and duplication, loss, whatever, and that the only real foreign genes in the eukaryote genomes are associated with these major endosymbiotic events and this endosymbiotic gene transfer process I talked about. But of course, that story is completely without merit now. And in the case of Paul and L, I don't know if Arwa mentioned it, but many of the genes that would make up for the functions lost by the mm -hmm. endosymbiont actually came from other bacteria through yeah. horizontal transfer. So, I mean, in a way, even with endosymbiotic gene transfer, it also needed horizontal gene transfer. So, in a way, this well, argument for me is no longer an argument. But you could argue, if you wanted to be difficult, you could say, well, bacteria do so much HGT. Maybe the bacterium that was the endosymbiont yes. had, had all of these genes in it already, which, again, yeah. is, I think... 
Yeah, I think that you can make exactly. But I think the, you know, I would say that as with a lot of scientific theories, you know, one can argue back and forth using, you know, small data sets and low quality data. But as with many arguments that as more data comes in, then it becomes much, much harder to argue against the fact that the genome itself what you're referring to was chimeric. That is, the ancient eukaryote had these bacterial genes in it. Of course, it's comprised of two prokaryotes that came together. So, but, but actually, when you spend a lot of time together in a lineage, like the eukaryotes, two billion years, they're eukaryotic genes. So then you have to say, okay, everything else that comes in, it should really group with some other, say, bacterium in, a, in an obvious fashion. And we call that nested. That's when a gene sitting in a eukaryote genome is sitting inside of a tree of life that you know of a particular bacterial group, and then it's very hard to imagine that this is some sort of a weird evolutionary yeah. process. So that's totally. been shown all over the place, and therefore I don't really fuss and fret about HET hypothesis, which I've been working on for 20 years. Right, we were one of the we were one of the first people to really push this idea, and it turned out that we just needed more data, and now it's more or less accepted. I think. Totally. Totally. Good explanation. Thanks. I have one more question before we wrap up. Could you explain why you study protists and why more people should study protists? Or not. Maybe we should just capitalize on it. <laughs> yeah, I think the, because we've worked on a lot of different types of cells. I think there's a very straightforward answer to it. And I, I, don't, I don't have any particular protists I think you should study. The problem with not studying diversity in sort of deep genomics and other methods and biochemistry is that we build our picture of life on the planet based on, you know, a few model systems like Rabidopsis, the nematodes, the elegans, Drosophila, yeast, and all of these guys are really specialized. And this is where the word derived comes in. They're actually all really derived, you know, and so, and so what happens is that we end up comparing apples to oranges across the tree of life and we don't actually know what are the intermediate steps? What are the other possible outcomes of evolution, right? That's about as fundamental as you can get. So that's where we, by studying not only protists, but any organism that has not been studied that constitutes its really deep split in the tree of life is really important just to understand what is possible in terms of how evolution shapes life. Every time you've brought up derivation, I keep... I keep picturing like those scientific illustrations of olden days of the hierarchy of different organisms with humans at the top. And I think some people that aren't as clued in on science today still feel this way. But I just keep thinking humans are so derivative. (laughs) (laughs) They are. Yeah, that's a that's a hard one for a lot of people to swallow. (laughs) Yeah, that, that there is no hierarchy in the tree of life in terms of who ends up on top. Actually, everything that's alive today is more or less ancient because we all go back to our eukaryotic ancestors. And selection will favor really radical, radically different solutions. You know, when you know when primates left trees and started to forage and needed, you know, and all the all the stuff that's undergone in human evolution is the outcome of selection favoring particular solutions. And it can be really complicated, right, in humans, the brain and all that. But actually, it's, we're not the only ones. If you look at dinoflagellates, as you know well know. Some of the solutions they've come up to surviving in the oceans are ridiculous. They make humans seem pretty simple. So in a way, we have to just stop focusing only on humans as these amazing works of art. We have to realize that there are kind of amazing works of art all over the tree of life. 
you said I may know about dinoflagellates <laughs> and I choose not to know about yeah, them because their genomes are so complicated, more complicated than ours in a lot of ways. So I choose to let other people in the lab like the postdocs work on that. That's, that's why the graduate students are world class and the postdocs suffer. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Full circle. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If people listening want to follow the work that you are doing, where can they follow you? I would say that if you're interested in the scientific stuff, you can just put my name into any Google search uh, and you'll Except find it. Except that it's a famous sitar player. It's a famous player. sitar player, so just... <laughs> Just don't go to the sitar player. He's, he, I'm sure he's a good guy. <laughs> the other thing is that if you, we also make these uh, animated videos about science, and mm. they're really fun. So if you put in Padacharya Lab Research on YouTube, you will come to our research group website. And there we take a lot of the stories I've talked about, not only the algae, but also corals. And we try to make them into videos that are fun to watch and hopefully educational. So, yeah, and if anybody wants to drop me a line, they can always find me on the web. I'm, I'm not hard to find. So... Thank you so much. Julie. I'll put links to all those things and I'll, I'll link your Twitter too. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. Thank you, Julia. It's a pleasure. Some final thoughts after interviewing my boss. Devashish told me he was proud of himself for not swearing on the podcast. Also, he didn't mention this, but there's actually a glaucophyte named after him called Glaucocystis botticariae. It was named by a group in Japan who described a bunch of new glaucophytes and have contributed a lot to the field, and they were acknowledging his contributions that came before theirs. I will link the paper in the show notes if anyone is interested. One of my favorite work stories was about four years ago. I was looking at a pond sample from campus, and I found a glaucophyte colony under the microscope, and I emailed DB or Debashish, who was down the hall, and I said, I found a glaucophyte. And he ran into the dry lab all excited and said, Oh my God, do you think it could be Glaucocystis botticariae? It was very funny. I'll also link the menage a trois or mat hypothesis paper, which I give DB credit for explaining because I did not tell him I was going to bring this up beforehand. Classic case of gotcha journalism. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.